0: All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lowertown. Glad you're all able to be here. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at Hope Lowertown. We've been here for uh, coming up very quickly uh, on five years, uh, planted at a Hope Community Church downtown Minneapolis. And um, uh, part of that still, its a, we're a location uh, of them, still uh, connected with them. And uh, yeah, so that, that's that. Um let's jump let's jump in here. So we've been uh this is now week four, where we've been looking at the storyline of the Bible in 16 verses. There's a tiny little book uh by a gentleman named Chris Bruno, and he wrote uh the story of the Bible in 16 verses. We're doing it in 14 weeks. We've already covered uh five of these in three weeks, and so we're looking at the next uh verse uh or chapter, if you will, or uh major theme and, and look at the, the whole storyline of the Bible, and we're just kind of piecemealing it. Uh, together, but before I, I do that, I want to um, uh, talk talk real quick about this couple. <clears throat> this is uh, Willie and Betty Betty Tripp. So I took a photo of a of a. It, I don't know how to explain this, but our churches used to do this back in the day. If you're older, maybe your church did this. If You grew up going to church. We basically had like a church yearbook, um, but it was a directory. Uh, so there was like picture day for your church, and so everyone would get dressed up. And some people would bring their dogs uh, and and they would get their picture taken and then have your name and your phone number and your address, um, which which is so wild to think about. You know, we have such like a, I don't know, like my, oh, it's my privacy, I don't wanna just give out my information, but does everyone remember you'd get a phone book, you know what I mean? Like it would just, every person who lived in your county, like you knew their names, their address. Uh, their phone numbers. Anyways, I actually tried calling uh, Betty this week, but the phone number was disconnected, and and uh, I don't even know if she's still still alive. I know that um, uh, Willie had passed away back in uh, 2012. Uh, Willie, this is not connected at all to anything I'm about to say this morning, but I have a quick story about Willie. Um, he is a, he's a, he was a World War II vet, and he was part of the uh, what we called the color guard, and and so every time there was a funeral for uh, a, a vet. Uh, he and I forget how many other people. I think it was seven, and they would do the twenty-one gun salute, right? Three times seven It's twenty-one, correct? Uh, and they would line up, and they would shoot their their rifles, you know, with blanks. And and when they got done, because I was a trumpet player, they used to have uh, someone with like a like a like a fake trumpet and with like a speaker play taps. And um, they knew that I could play the trumpet. And and so Willie was like, "Would you would you mind actually playing the trumpet at these funerals?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd be honored to do that." Um, and so I, we had a lot of uh, veteran funerals, not just from our, our church, but uh, in the whole county. Really, we, these these people would travel, and I played taps a lot. And it was very humbling. It was the last thing that would happen before they gave the flag uh, to their survivors. And the story though about Willie was. There was one one. He was an older guy. Uh, he died. when He was eighty seven in two thousand twelve. And and he uh, was was firing his rifle for the twenty. And I'm getting I'm ready to play the trumpet, which is always nerve wracking, just because I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to like ruin this really uh, special moment. Not that it was about me, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I just didn't want it to be about me and make a mistake. Um, and Willie uh, fired the rifle, but the <laughs> the uh, the back kick. What do you call that? The uh, recoil. Thank you. Sheesh. Uh, he, it, it knocked him over. He, 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 he fell for, and as he tried to brace himself with his rifle, it, it went off again, uh, without, obviously it was just shooting blanks, but, but it, so I'm now kind of, kind of laughing, kind of like, oh, is he okay? And now it's my turn to play the trumpet. Uh, uh, I did okay. It was all right. But anyways, that had nothing to do with anything. Now, Betty, let me tell you about Betty. Betty, sweetest old lady. Uh, I mean, just just picture the, your sweetest grandma and make her ten times sweeter, and you have Betty. Uh, she uh, would get up and she would sing these spirituals for our church, and and you knew she meant it. Uh, she she would she's sang at her husband's funeral on the mountain. I actually had the privilege of playing taps for for Willie at his funeral, and uh, but she would sing these songs that were just so so moving. Well. My very first time, I don't know if it was my first, maybe my second time preaching. I didn't get a lot of opportunities back then. I was a college pastor, and so I didn't get a lot of chances to preach on a Sunday morning. Uh, but one of my first times preaching on a Sunday morning, uh, Betty, Betty was there, and I told this story. And, and it had a point. I told this story. Uh, I was a history minor, and so I would learned about this in school and I wanted to share it as an use this story as an illustration. I shared about this this uh, this guy, Major General Gordon uh, Granger, uh, who went into Galveston, Texas in in, in June of eighteen sixty five. And, and, and he had told the slaves that they were free. They had been free for over two and a half years, but they had no idea. And then I told this story as this really cool illustration of like, that's, we, we need to share the gospel. And people don't know the good news inherently. They gotta be told the good news. And, and I kind of had this, this major general as kind of the hero of this, of this story, which, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But afterwards, Betty came up to me. And this was, again, this was probably 12, 12 some years ago. And Betty, Betty comes up to me and she just said, Pastor, I just want to thank you for talking about Juneteenth. And I was like, I didn't talk about Juneteenth. I don't know what you're talking about. I'd never, never heard this phrase Juneteenth before. I had no idea what she was talking about. She's like, but I, she's like, as, as great as I was, I wish you would have talked about the, the celebration of of what this is for, for people being set free, right? Of, of like, and, and it's a, it's a celebration. And every year she would go back. She was from the South. She's like, we, would, I go back home with my family. We have this big party and we, I sing songs and we pray and we just rejoice in our savior. And I was like, I didn't know that. All right. Not that it was a bad thing to not know, but I just was, was clueless. And I used this thing as like an illustration. And she kind of, you know, let me in on some information about it. And it wasn't until last year that President Biden had made Juneteenth a, a federal holiday. Um, and again, it was still just new to me. Like I, I didn't know this was a thing. Um, and so this week in the, in the email, I'd shared some information that, uh, Drew Zolke, pastor at Columbia Heights had passed on to me that was very, very insightful. And I'm thankful. And so I say all of that uh, because me talking about that uh, event, historical event, and using it as an illustration, at least the way that I did, wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but I didn't share the whole story. Uh, And that happens a lot in the Bible, especially when we look at Old Testament characters, when we look at people in the Old Testament, I, I don't, there's something culturally, I don't know if it's just an American Christian culture thing that we take characters of the Old Testament and it's just like, oh, it's they're in the Bible, therefore they're good people. It's just, that's just not how the Bible works. Uh, that we have, a, most of the Bible is a narrative. It's telling a story. It's not telling us do what this person did, uh, act like this person. Uh, no. Uh, and so today we're going to look at Abraham specifically and and I I have a two things one one was this morning just this morning I I was uh on my phone I was I woke up and I was just kind of going through the news and there was an article written just at least it was published today um by a pretty well-known church and organization and I don't need to name it but but it was about how Abraham that when he he laughs uh when God says you're gonna have a son and he's an old man and he laughs kind of at God, with God, not not really a good thing. And then the author then says, Fathers, you know, it's father's days, so we're gonna tie it in somehow. Fathers, you need to laugh more with your kids. You need to assert your dominance with your laughter, right? When they try to push you over, it's okay to laugh at them. And it's like, what are you talking about? Right? That's that's not what the story of Abraham <laughs> is about. Uh, and I'm not trying to put down other pastors or anything. I, so I, I, this was a Facebook uh, thing that happened this week. Um, and again, it was it just it popped up in my in my feed this this week, and I was like, I I, I, did, I, did, I didn't even f- put the whole thing on there because it got it take, takes a turn. Uh, but a pastor friend uh, from my alma mater said this: Abraham was ready to kill his own son. So you may not know the story, but Abraham and Isaac. Uh, that God tells Abraham the son that you laughed about having, you are going to have him. And And God says, "I want you to sacrifice your son." So this is the where he, this uh, this pastor's picking up. Abraham was ready to kill his own son simply because God told him to, and Abraham trusted that God knew what he was doing. Now that might be true, but then he keeps going, even though he was seconds from spilling his son's blood, Abraham did not hate his son, he loved him perhaps more than most parents love their children. I don't know where he gets that from, but sure yet his devotion to God's to God superseded all other loves and determined the outcome of his life. Abraham didn't make it all up on his own. He was following orders. And then he goes on to say, right, it was credited to him for righteousness, which is a quote from Genesis, but not about this account. That there's just, hey, Abraham, he just, just elevated him. Hey, look, look how great he was. He, he obeyed God. Let's be like Abraham. I mean, that's, that's that. He did that sometimes, but man, he, he did some really bad things as well. Uh, and so today we're going to be looking at Abraham, and more so the God of Abraham. Um, this week's sermon called "The Father of a Multitude," which is uh, where what Abraham means. Uh, his name was Abram, which is father, which was then uh, it was named Abraham, which is father of a multitude, father of nations. And so let's jump into this. So I'm going to kind of go back, and I'll probably do this every week. Let's, let's just try to try to catch up where we've where we've been in this. And so this is kind of that—that that the major uh, storyline, these 16 major things. So, so far we've covered creation, human beings, the fall, redemption promise, and now we'll be in Abraham. So just going, going back, we have these benedictions that God creates. And he says, behold, it's, it is good. It is very good. It is good. It is good. And he says this over and over that God creates. We have to start there. Uh, in our culture, in our society, um, there's just a, not a lot of people believe in God or any kind of God or any kind of creator um, or or, or uh, grand designer, anything like that. And so the, the storyline has to start with, with God. Uh, there is a creator, and he makes things good. And then he creates human beings in the image of God. He created them. This is our origin story, that we have purpose. And so last week, I'd mentioned uh, Hamlet, that he uses this phrase, to be or not to be. That is the question. But what is Hamlet actually getting at? Well, he's saying to be, to live, to to, to to actually survive. Or should I defeat my difficult circumstances and just die? I'll win by not to be. That's the question. And when we have purpose, because we've been created in the image of God, we can continue, no matter how difficult our circumstances may be, that we have purpose, and that is to be in the image of God, to honor him, to glorify And then it doesn't last long. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve both take of the fruit and eat. And all the sin and the darkness and the evils that we are all too well acquainted with infiltrate our universe and our world. But it's just eight verses later that God shows up and he says, he shall bruise your head. He will crush your head. That God is giving a curse to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve And he says, I'm going to make a promise right here, right now, that there's going to be a descendant of Eve. Part of Eve's seed is going to crush your head. You're going to bite his heel. You're going to cause some pain, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to win this thing. And so just to summarize, this is a direct quote here from Chris Bruno. He says, God created a kingdom and he is the king, but he made human beings to represent him in the kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call which led to sin and death, but God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman. So let's look now at this father of the multitude, Abraham. In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham is one of those characters that we, you might be familiar with, you might not be. He might be more of a an abstract thing. If you grew up in the church, you may have heard stories about Abraham. You may have read the narrative of Abraham. Um, if you were like me, you grew up and you sang a song about Father Abraham, uh, and we would do this thing. It was more just to get the wiggles out of the kids. I, didn't, I had no idea what this song was about. Uh, Father Abraham has many sons. Even as a kid, like a little girl next to me, like, yeah, I guess uh, you a son. I guess you're a son. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, sit down, praise God. I had no idea what that meant. Still don't, no. That all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That through his seed, every single human being that's born that's of God, puts their faith in God, are going to be a descendant of Abraham. We'll get into that later as we get into this storyline, not necessarily today even. But this, these are the verses. Let me read these. And then we're going to dig into who, who is Abraham, what makes him so special. Genesis 12, two through three. These are the verses from, from the book, at least, that we're supposed to be looking at. God says this, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So let's let's look at this, this individual. Who is he? Where does he come from? In Genesis chapter uh, 10 and 11, we're, we're briefly told the story of the Tower of Babel. And what happens is we have Noah and the flood and all these different things. There's only eight people on, in the, in the, uh, in the ark and there that are saved and the earth is renewed and, and cleansed of the wickedness. And it's kind of just a, God does this cosmic reset button. If you guys remember the NES had a reset button, just start it over. All right. That's what God's doing, but, but it's, this is painful. I've never understood. You can go to even one of the nurseries down here. Every why is it every nursery has a painting of the ark and the animals? Oh, look, this is great. They always fail to put all the people dying in the water. I've never understood that. This is, that was not a. Good, it wasn't like a beautiful thing, right? It was this is a this was a hard thing. And so what happens after that is you have generations that come and the earth starts populating. People seem to live a lot longer back then. And so the population uh, grows at a much more exponential rate. Um, And they get together. There's only one language and they build this tower, the Tower of Babel, which means confusion in Hebrew. And so that's why it's in Babylon and and, there's a lot of connections there. And the reason why I put this up there is there's some different uh, viewpoints, speculations, but there's only 390 years from Shem, who would have been on the ark, to when the Tower of Babel takes place, you can look at the ages of all the dads who have kids, and, and you know you'll be pleased to know that even though they were living to be like 400 years old, they were all having kids in their 30s. So I felt a little better, you know, about myself. Um, <laughs> right. So you have this guy Abram, who maybe he was present at this moment of Babel, maybe not, maybe shortly after, but very close. In the timeline to the Tower of Babel. Um, and then we get to Genesis chapter 11, and we're introduced to this man, Abram, and we just get a little bit of his genealogy. And so bear with me as I read some of these, these verses. It says, This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haram died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So so for whatever reason, it seemed like this his father, Abram's dad, wanted to go to Canaan, this, the promised land of Israel, but it hasn't been promised yet. It just is a nice neighborhood, apparently, which would have been the current modern day where Israel-Palestine is. But Ur of the Chaldeans is, is just like a 100 miles kind of southwest of where Baghdad, current modern-day Baghdad is, right by uh, Babylon, where it would have been between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And so he's just this, this nomad uh, traveling from here to there, kind of all in that region, just stayed right there in the Babylonian area where modern-day Iraq. And he just wanders around. It's really all that we, we know about him as far as history and genealogy just kind of pops up on the map and that's it. So then why is he so special? Did he do something? Did he say something? Is he going to do something really, really special? Why would God choose him out of all the people on the earth at that time? So what do we know about him? Well, if we go to Joshua 24 much further in the storyline of the Bible, Yahweh, God, talks to Joshua, the leader of the Israelites at the time. And Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. So so now God is talking through Joshua, and he's going to kind of recap a little bit of Abraham. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Naor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from that land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. So all we know about this guy Abraham, Abram at the time, is that he was a, a nomad, he was a wanderer. He just kind of traveled around, but he lived in this land of of uh, of Ur. And what we do know is that he worshiped other gods. And so I'm so glad I live in the 21st century where I can do a quick Google search. I was thinking about if I had to like go to a library Remember that and go through the index cards. Most of you don't even remember what those things were and, and try to find the information that I found, you know, on a quick little Google, like Babylonian gods. Um, <laughs> so I found a website, sim- symbol, symbolsege.com, and there's a comprehensive list of Babylonian gods. It's fantastic. It's a very, very great website. But it introduced me to this thing called the Ziggurat of Ur. It's a massive, massive structure. It's still there. You can go see the ruins today. And it would have been this massive structure dedicated to this, this, uh, moon god, uh, that, that Abram would have been worshiping. He lived right here. He lived in town in Ur with this ziggurat. And this ziggurat, this is a quote here from that, from that, uh, uh website. Sorry, I didn't put the footnote up there. He said the sin's seat was the ziggurat of Ur in the Sumerian Empire where, where he was worshiped as one of the main gods. By the time Babylon started rising, Sin's temple had fallen into ruins and were being restored by King Nebadinus of Babylon. All right. So it was a Sumerian god and the Babylonians just kind of inherited it. Sin had temples even in Babylonia. He was worshipped as the god of the moon and was believed to be the father of Ishar and Shamash. No idea. Didn't want to take the time to look up who they were. Before his cult developed, he was known as Nana, the god of cattle herders and the livelihood of people in the city. Of earth. So this God, sin, this moon God would have been extremely important to Abram as he's worshiping. So he's worshiping the moon. He's worshiping sin, probably going to that ziggurat to worship his God. And what happens? God shows up and God chooses this false God worshiping. And I have a direct quote here then from this book this landless, childless nomad into a great nation to carry on the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. And so here, here we go. All, all we know about this guy, not very much what I just said, but what we do know is just not so great. All right, maybe he's going to do great things we don't really know yet, but from right now, it's what he is. He's a moon-worshiping, landless, childless no man. And God says to Abram, seemingly out of the blue, go from your country. Go from Ur of the Chaldeans. Go from your country, the people, the culture, the gods that you know. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. Leave everything to the land I will show you. That's what happens. God just shows up. Now, before we dig in any further, I need to point out that there are two types of covenants in the Bible times two. Okay, there's, there's not four different types of covenants. There's is two different. Co- I'll just let me just explain it. What is a covenant? A covenant uh, is is an oath, a binding contract. It's more than just a contract. It's a binding oath between two parties that cannot be broken. Uh, that it, it's always going to be a thing. Now there are there are stipulations to a lot of these covenants that do this and this good thing will happen. Don't do this and bad things will happen. That's part of the covenant. And these covenants can be superseded by a greater or bigger or newer covenant, but it's always going to be intact. And so these two different types of covenants, the first aspect that I want to look at is conditional versus unconditional. This is why when, when we do weddings, at least when I do weddings at Hope, I talk about the covenant of marriage. This is something that is unbreakable. This is not, this is not meant to be easily, uh, broken. It's not, there's, there's no, uh, prenuptial agreement that if you don't do this, then I'm out. No, this is a this is a serious undertaking to make a new family in the eyes of God and witnesses and with each other. We have these two different ways of view something as conditional and unconditional. That as we're going to see with Abraham, God is going to use the language, "I will do this for you, I will do this, I will do this." That nowhere does He say to Abraham, "You got to do this, though." Doesn't happen. That's going to be conditional. That would, is true with the mosaic. Covenant with Moses, where he gives the commandments. Hey, I'm going to bless you if you obey my commands. If you don't obey my commands, bad things are going to happen. And that's the story in the history of Israel and the people of God, that they just don't obey God, and the, and the covenant remains intact, but there's punishment that happens to the people. Unconditional, the covenant that God makes with Noah, I will never hit the reset button again. I'm not going to do it. I'm never going to do it with well, with water. I'm never going to do it with water again. Everything else, all the other elements, they're still on the table, but not with water. King David, I will establish you. You will have a throne forever, that there's gonna be a new covenant in Jesus Christ, that he is now gonna supersede everything and pull it all in to himself. So that's one aspect of a covenant, conditional versus unconditional. Another one, I found this um, old school uh, PowerPoint graphic online, but it's very helpful, um, is this idea called the suzerain vassal. These are words that we don't really use a whole lot but think if you vassal might sound a little bit more familiar think a uh, medieval structure you've got a king with a castle and a and, and, and his job was to protect the people right the the peasants and the peons or servants whatever you want to call them that were outside and they would farm and do all the things and and do all these things they didn't give taxes to the king but it was his role to protect right it was his role to do this thing so there's a suzerain which is a lord over somebody who is a vassal and this is a A covenantal structure that was very well familiar uh in in Palestine or yeah, in the region in in Assyria, uh, with the Sumerians, the Babylonians, they would have we have records of them making very similar structure covenants. I know it might be hard to read. Let me let me just read this. It says, in every divine covenant, there is a correspondingly different role of a vassal. The vassal serves the covenant suzerain or lord, the vassal receives the covenant and it's blessings from the suzerain. The vassal displays gratitude to the suzerain. The vassal acknowledges dependence upon the suzerain. The vassal is the beneficiary, right? That the, that the sovereign, the Lord, he's got his army. He could lord it over them in a bad way and say, no, you're just going to make me food, pay me taxes. And when an army comes to attack, I'm just going to hold up in my castle. I'm not, I'm not going to, no, no. He's depending upon the, the, the one in power and leadership there. And that's what happens a lot within Scripture, that you have the suzerain or Yahweh, God, making a covenant, and then you have the people that are the receivers of this, and they benefit from this. Now, I'm going to receive some kind of blessing, but the vassal, the people that receive it, give some kind of gratitude, worship, praise, obedience, acknowledge dependence, and that's exactly what what happens. And so here is this unconditional suzerain vassal covenant that God seemingly out of the blue makes with Abram. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever come curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. That's the covenant. That's the promise that the sovereign, the Lord, is going to make now with his servant, with this vassal, with Abram, but it's an unconditional one. There is nothing that Abraham can do to break this covenant. And when you read the story of Abraham, you go, man, but he sure tried. He did everything he could to put this covenant to the test. And he's not someone to be idolized. He's someone to, to learn from. So let's look at this, and let's look at Abraham's faith in the promises of God is what leads to his righteousness. As we skip forward to chapter 15, we see this account. But Abram said, his name hasn't been changed yet, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? So this promise, this unconditional covenant's already been made. You will, I will. I will, you will be great. You will be a nation. And Abram's like, yeah, all right. Yeah, checks out. Sounds good to me. Some God is talking to me from the heavens. Yeah, cool. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Because God makes, you're going to have, you're going to be the father of many nations, but he has no child. And he's almost 85 years old. His wife is 75 years old. And as we've already learned, and and earlier on in Genesis, she's unable to have children. So he's like, well, apparently someone else, Eleazar of Damascus, is going to inherit what I have. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said, and Yahweh said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And now here's what happens. Abram believed the Lord and he, God, credited to Abram as righteousness. What is it that Abram did that was so great in his life? that we should look up to, was it because he was willing to sacrifice his son? Was it because he, we're going to look at just briefly the things that he, other things that he does. What is it that saves Abram? He believes. He has faith in the promises of God and takes God at his word, which if I'm not mistaken, would be a pretty wild thing to do as an 85 year old, to go outside and have God say, look up at the stars, start counting them, so are your children going to be. He just made it clear. It's not going to be, it's going to be your own son, your own flesh and blood that's going to carry on this generation, carry on this line. And he looks at the stars and he says, I believe. And God says, that's enough. But then God then, uh, or or Abram right after this, he's going to say, God, I I, I just, I want to, how do I know this is actually going to happen like, I, I believe you but I want to know I want to see it can you can you can you prove that this is actually going to be the case in Genesis chapter 15 right after the story I'm not going to read the account but in Genesis 15 17 we're told of of this reenactment of uh, of a covenant and I know I've, I've talked about this many times here but let me reaccount this was the most PG image I could find of this enactment. So let me explain what's going on. Now you have Abram and God puts Abram to sleep and he takes these animals and he he cuts them in half and he spreads them out. And it says that this flaming torch and this fire passes through these animals that have been torn in half. And the whole point of that, because in these covenants, suzerain, vassal, or conditional, there was also uh, covenants that would have been of equal party, which would be like a marriage. That these covenants, then what would happen is that if it was either way, it was suzerain, vassal, or or one that would have been of equal value, or equal value, equal worth, whatever you're talking about, equals, that they, they would hold hands, they'd bind arms, they would walk through these animals that were torn in half. And the whole point of that was to say, if I break this covenant, if I don't do what I said I was going to do, then let it be done to me as would happen to these animals. And, and people took people up on that. All right, pretty gruesome. But what happens? Yahweh says, this is an unconditional covenant that I'm going to make with you. And I, myself, not you, Abram, I'm going to walk through this by myself. And if this doesn't happen, If you don't become the father of this great nation who all the families in all the world will be blessed, not just your bloodline. If this doesn't happen, then let it be done to me. God is what's being done to these animals. I will cease to be God, right? He puts his deity on the line for this unconditional covenant. But it doesn't stop there. He goes and again in Genesis chapter 17 and he says it again. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Then he uses this phrase that we haven't seen since Genesis chapter two before the fall to be your God and to be the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. There's so many other nations and gods that are at war with one another, and these, these gods are fighting, and, and whatever it may be, and he said, no, 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 I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to be your God. I will be their God. Just like it was in the beginning in Genesis chapter two, that I was their God. I walked with them. I talked with them. I dwelt among them. We're going to see God do that now with Israel as he dwells. He tabernacles with his people that He he's in his temple. And then Jesus comes and he tabernacles. He dwells with us and he will someday, as we're going to read in just a minute, he's going to come back and he will be our God and we will be his people. It's the same language that's being used. And so what we can see here is that Abram's faith and the promises of God Is what led to his righteousness, but he puts God's covenant to the test. How does he do that? I'm not gonna take the time to just again recount all the stories, but man, there's a lot. As I as I looked this earlier on this week and I knew that when I was gonna be talking on Abraham, it was like, whoa, what part? What aspect do we focus on in the life of Abraham? There's so stinking much. And what I wanted to focus on was this this covenant of what God does with Abraham, not the man Abraham. Because what is it? How does God put him to, or how does Abram put God's covenant to the test? Well, he laughs. Like I mentioned earlier, he laughs at the fact that he's going to have a son. No, there's no chance. He lies about who his wife is, or his wife being his wife, two times. And not just like a small thing. Like, I, can't, I, can't, I cannot, as a husband, put myself in Abram's shoes where someone of power comes in, sees his wife and goes, she's pretty, I will have her, right? Because he fears for his own life. He's like, oh yeah, no, she's not my wife. She's, no, 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 you can, yeah, you, she can spend the night with you, it's all good. What? Two times he does it. He doesn't even learn his lesson the first time. And then God shows up because he's God and he's like, no, no, I've got a covenant to keep. So, in spite of my idiot guy, I picked Abram. I gotta save Sarah from this king or from Abimelech, this other individual who's like, "Oh, she's pretty. Yeah, sure, I'll have her." No, no. And God curses them. Was it that? Is that what made him great? No. Should we emulate that part of Abram's life? God makes this promise that you are gonna, you're gonna conceive. You're gonna have a child. He even says it to Sarah, you're going to have a child, and they don't believe him in that. So he tries to take things into his own hands, right? Because he already believed the covenant. It's already credited him as righteousness. He already believes in the promises of God, and then he goes, yeah, but maybe I think we could do it better. And he takes a servant, seemingly not necessarily a willing servant, conceives with Hagar, and has a child, Ishmael. The thing is, I might look at the life of Abraham and go, oh, I don't do that. I'm actually pretty good. I'm really good in comparison with who Abraham is, but those things didn't make him great. Even putting his faith in the promises of God didn't make him great. God made him great. It was the God of the promise that makes Abram great. Let me read then now just kind of the recap here of Where we're at, God created a kingdom. This is again a quote here from Chris Bruno. God created a kingdom, and he is the king. When he made human beings to represent him in the kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, which is going to be Jesus, who is also the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, the covenant blessing would come to the world. When we go back to Genesis chapter 17, that phrase, I will be your God and I will be their God and I will bless all people and all nations. When we get to the end of the book, we know how the story ends. And we can fast forward to Revelation 21, which if you've been part of Lower Town, you're well aware of these verses, but they're very fitting again for today. The apostle John, through a vision that Jesus gives him, is this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here it is. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And he was seated on the throne is Christ Jesus said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true, I will be their God, I will be their people. Now, when God makes this covenant promise with Abraham, it is for an ethnic group of Israel, but that's not all of it because God says, even back then, that all through you, all nations will be blessed, all people groups, not just Israel. And as we carry on the storyline, as we're going to see over the next, I can't do math, uh, 11 weeks, right? Sure that all of this is about Jesus. Um, a lot of you know that I'm the chaplain for the, the saints and we've been doing this thing called the the crimson thread. And we've been looking at Old Testament individuals. We looked at Abraham, we looked at Rahab, we've looked at Saul and it's not to elevate them. Wow, look how great Saul is when he tried to kill King David or, or look how great Rahab was. <laughs> no, there's just, nope. But how is it that Jesus is the fulfillment, how he is greater? There's this crimson thread of grace and mercy that passes through. And that's exactly what Abraham is to us. And he's not an example we put on a pedestal, but we say, oh, I need to have faith like Abraham. And that I need to believe in the promises of God. I need to believe in the promised one of God. So in conclusion, in gospel application. I tried to fit this to us, as I had said earlier about Abraham. It doesn't quite fit, but we'll we'll see what happens here. God chooses me, this idolatrous, greedy, lying sinner, to be part of the kingdom of God, to carry on the story of the one who crushed the serpent, past tense. It's already happened. You might think, maybe, if you've been here, five, five and a half, or, excuse me, almost five years now, Brian, it's kind of seems like every week you say the same thing. Yeah, I do. I hope I do. I hope that every week we're reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I need to be reminded of how much of a sinner I am. And I need to be reminded of how much God loves me and how much he still forgives me of the sin that I commit. Because I can look at Abraham and think, oh, I'm way better than him. I can look at other dads and think, oh, I'm way better than them whatever it may be, other pastors, I'm more righteous than that person. But I have to come back every single week to the conclusion that I'm not saved by anything I've done or anything I will do. Just like Abraham, I'm simply saved by faith in the promised one, in Christ. So I cannot boast. I cannot elevate myself. This is it, purely, God chose me idolatrous, still, greedy, still, liars, still, sinner to the core. He chose me to be part of his kingdom and to declare him who called me out of darkness into marvelous light, to tell the story of the one of Christ who crushes that serpent on the cross. Another aspect of finally here is that your faith in the promise of God is what leads to your righteousness. Righteousness but you put God's covenant to the test. We all do this every single week. But what we do also every single week is we come up and we grab these elements and we remember that God is not going to break his covenant, that he has made a covenant binding with his own blood. This is my body that we eat with the, that's represented by the wafer. This is my blood, which is represented by, represented by the juice that is shed for you that just like those animals being ripped in Genesis 15, it is actually going to happen to my body and my body is going to be broken and my blood is going to be shed so that we can know that this new covenant that's going to supersede this old, that all nations will be blessed, not just through ethnic Israelites, but through all people, all nations in the blood of Christ. And we get to do that now. We get to come up here. We get to open these wafers and eat them. We get to drink of the juice and remember the finished work of Christ. We're going to do something a little differently this week, maybe just a little extra time on, on reflection. But Angela's uh, going to come up and she's just going to play the piano. And I'll have the lyrics to the hymns that she's going to be playing. But we're not going to necessarily sing. If you want to sing, sing. There's no, no like, rules, don't sing. No singing. No. If you want to sing, go ahead and sing. Uh, we're just not going to have anyone necessarily leading uh, this, this uh, morning in communion. And all I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you say, yes, I struggle. I believe I have faith in the promises of God. And yet your prayer might be like the, like the dad that Jesus encounters whose daughter's sick. I believe Lord help my unbelief. So it's such a great, great phrase. I believe I have faith in these promises. Of God help my unbelief. If that's you that I would love for you to partake of these elements. Uh, with us as we remember what it is that Christ has done for us, the finished work of the one who crushed the head of that serpent. We get to be part of that kingdom to declare him and the goodness of him who looks at us and looks at us as our sin, looks at us as our failures and our flaws and everything about us and says, I love you. I love you. I sent my son to die for you. Let me close in prayer. And then Angela's going to play a couple songs. Feel free to come up as you see fit, grab the elements and take a seat, pray, sing, whatever you see fit to do. Let's go ahead and pray now together. Father, I thank you for your everlasting covenant. I thank you for the covenant that is still intact that you made with Abraham so many years ago. And as we look at these characters in the Old Testament, as we're going to continue doing over the next several weeks here, that we would know that that's just another person. That's a flawed human being that for Whatever sovereign reason that we can't even begin to think or comprehend in our minds, you chose that person to carry on this bloodline, to carry on who you are, to bless all people in all nations. So God, I pray now that as we remember these things, that there would be those of us in this room that need to confess our sin, to repent and know that you're faithful that you are justified in doing so. You are just in forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us from all of our unrighteousness because when we put our faith in you and your promises and your son, we are credited with righteousness just like our father, Abraham. Pray now that you'd receive honor and glory as we reflect on the hymns and the songs being sung as we pray and as we partake of these elements that you would just be honored and glorified. And it's your son's name we pray.